0: So the secular world and the business community and the entrepreneurs are using these processes to create innovative, interesting things that are changing the way we live our lives. All the underpinnings on the church teaching, even when our current Pope is talking about, is going to this fact that we can be innovative and we can be entrepreneurs and we can think creatively on how we can take the gospel of Jesus Christ in all its fullness to other people in our world. And that's exciting. How can we become the nodes of a network that keep people connected to God. Can we use innovation to strengthen those connections
1: and build relationships that allow us to serve others better? In today's episode, President of the OSV Institute for Catholic Innovation, Jason Shanks, explains what innovation really means in a Christian context and describes how all of us can be
0: the source of new ideas to advance the gospel. I think there's an entrepreneur within all all of us in a certain sense. I mean, we all have a creative bone. We all liked the color when we were kids. I think there's a misconception that entrepreneurs are these geniuses like Walt Disney and Steve Jobs. And I think we can help form entrepreneurs. And I think they're. I think it's ingrained in me. I think there's a cooperation with the the creator, God himself, in bringing these ideas and reaching neighbor and, and bringing the message of Jesus Christ. It's not just for the select few. By being hungry, humble and smart, and through the guidance of the Holy Spirit,
1: we too can become innovators for the kingdom. This is Living the Call. Jason Shanks, welcome to the show.
0: Deacon, it's so good to be with you. This is, uh, I always enjoy our time to be able to talk together, and this is going to be fun.
1: Likewise. You know, you're one of these guys, I was thinking about this, um, you know, in the kind of beginning, you know, thinking about what, what, how, how this would go and what we would talk about, but you're one of these guys... I mean, in a sense, we're all this way. We're all kind of nodes in a network that connect to others. Theologically, we know this idea, the principle of being family and community, we get that. Mm -hmm. But there's these kind of like super nodes. I think you're one of these sort of super nodes that has a tremendous amount of connectivity to and from you. So by way of example, you and I met whenever it was, two, three years ago at this point. But in that time, I've come in contact with so many people Some some of which you've directly introduced me to, but even Mm -hmm. others that are somehow connected to you. So there's this like, you know, focus area or some level of concentration around you that you're just connected to all of these really, you know, great people. And I give a lot of thanks to that because, you know, um, it's certainly been beneficial for the putting together of this show. But just in general, I, I love that kind of sense of connectivity that you seem to have.
0: Well, I have an advantage. So the advantage is OSV and where I work. And they're a trusted entity who's been around a whole long time, uh, and then the work I've done is a lot of those nodes or connections is because in one way or the other, OSV has been a part of it, has been a part of what they're doing, and that could sometimes that takes on the form of funding, and uh, and so it's a uh, it's a it's a joy to sort of be in that connecting role and to help people because uh, I see people all over the world and and things that. Are of like mind or have similar passions or frankly similar ideas or things they're working on, and I love the opportunity to bring them together. I mean, I think it it moves things uh, for the kingdom in a much bigger, better way when we can move together. And sometimes it just it just takes someone doesn't even know this other person is working on or would have some insight into, and uh, and we take personal pride in the institute of which I'm the president to make sure that we are able to connect and that this is, there is no agenda. It's just frankly um, helping all the ships rise.
1: It's like a um, kind of ecclesial or spiritual concierge is what I kind of consider it. But, you know, we've talked about this before. There is such, um, there's a real power to the, to the idea of a network effect, right? Right. Um, From a secular standpoint, you know, people get that quite a bit, which is why they have these, you know, kind of conferences and, different, you know, moments throughout the year, depending on the industry, where people just come together to come together. And that has, you know, a downstream effect that's pretty powerful. But what you are doing specifically with OSV, but I I would say even beyond that, is kind of creating you know in a way these sort of watering holes and and I can definitely see and attest to the network effect that it creates have you have you always been that kind is that like your temperament have you always been that kind of person that's sort of at the hub of the wheel?
0: I think so I mean I try to be i mean I'm the guy that if you say you're looking for a job, I'm out there looking for you the job to be able to connect you so it, it I do think it's a part of my temperament but i would i mean when you talk about networking, there's a book that I really like, and you may be, may be familiar with it. It's called Never Eat Alone. Came out all oh, 10, 15 years ago, I think, really in the marketing space. And what I love about the book and what I try to do is more than just a master networker, right? You know a lot of yeah. people. We're, we're, what I'm really trying to do is go deeper, have relationships and authentic relationships, right? I think, frankly, that's what has become of you and I right? We're not just, I wouldn't say we're just professional uh, colleagues who network and have a mutually beneficial thing. I would consider you a friend and someone that I Absolutely. care about. And, and so when I go to a conference, I try not to just work the room or network or get as many business cards. I really want to spend time with people. And I think it's in, it's in that that I would encourage, particularly your listeners, if you want to, if you want to network, I would suggest that it has more to do with relationships it has more to do with these are my friends I mean these are people I care for these are people I want to see succeed and I think to me that's that, that's the key and that's if you read that book Never Eat Alone I think it goes into a lot of that he has an approach to how he does a conference and he talks about this idea of he focuses on the one or two people and that's Ooh. that's it for the whole conference it's not Ooh. for him uh you know work the room I think it also, frankly, to be honest with you, has a lot to say about how we as church should evangelize because the reality is networking, uh, and we use this in the business world in these terms, networking and how to become a better networker. It's, It's really how do you evangelize for the Lord? How do you become the center of the wheel that people want to talk to? How do you have a level of trust? How do you help serve them and deliver for them? but care for them and authentically have a relationship with them. And so, again, I think these marketing principles that you know all too well are these sales strategies that people have, um, which I think at times can be a little disingenuous. I mean, they're, they're sure. doing it from a transactional standpoint. But in my case, I think it's what we're called to be as, as um, to be Christ and to, to advance the gospel. Well, there's a huge spiritual
1: principle in that. I mean, you know, the idea of coming into relationship— of forming community of recognizing that there is a human being a person who is there in front of you and not accidentally right when you when you view everything as i know you do from the standpoint of providence yeah. it's like hey you know you're here with that particular person or those couple of particular people in that conference expressly for a reason and discovering what that reason is means paying attention Right. To the person that you're in front of my brother who I reference often on the show because he's been a, a you know a mentor of mine he's a couple years older and as you know he's, he's now a priest and he's a Benedictine you know he, he years ago before he was discerning his vocation first his monastic vocation, you know, he used to come over and we would have these conversations and he and he would tell me something that struck me quite a bit and it ties to this principle you just articulated. Which is, you know, he would say to me, he's like, Charlie, right now, it's like you're the most important person in the world. Mm -hmm. Right. And he meant that, you know, I'm his brother. Mm On some level, he means that just in general. But what he meant was, like, there's only the moment. And for right now, it's us, right? So you're the most you're the person I care about the most right now because you're the person I'm in front of right now. God allowed us to be together. And it really that always really struck me because it it, you know, it was it was an example, kind of a witness to the principle you just described, which is, if we're in front of one another, right now it's you and I, mm-hmm. it's like, you know, on some level, God from the beginning of time ordained this moment. Right. And so how do we use this moment, you know, for, for, you know, our own, you know, kind of mutual walk, et cetera, but for the purposes of the kingdom of God. And it's that recognition that's pretty powerful. Not, not, not something you come across often, to your point, in the secular world, but nevertheless important.
0: There's a sense of generosity. There's a sense that I am giving of myself to you. And I'm doing it in a way that I want the, the good of the other, unless a I am networking with Deacon Charlie because I want to gain, get something, right? And I think there's a difference of approach. I know very well on the other side of this, the people who want to connect with me because they want a grant or they want dollars or they want funding or they want something I I can see them coming across the room, right? After four years of doing it, I can recognize it, and I handle it. Of course. But yeah. what I really appreciate is that idea of Scripture, of being able to walk together two by two, right? And where two are gathered, there there I am, uh, there Christ is. I love this idea of doing ministry together, doing life together, and I oh. think we as church are, are better for it. And so we, we pride ourselves at the Institute of trying to foster collaboration, and it's hard. I have discovered it's not an easy thing to, to get done, in large part uh, for a lot of different reasons, of silos and, and pridefulness and uh, of, of, of things. But I think if we start with this idea of generosity and wanting the best for the other, which I know in my life you've been one of those people who've been very generous, not just in work we've done together, but personally, and um, I think we need more of that in the church and in our, our work and in the secular world. Um, and so again, I think I think networking almost can become like a, uh, it might have a bad comment, connotation to it, but I think in its most positive sense, it is it's being generous with yourself, it's giving to the other, it's not expecting in anything in return, uh, and it's it's one and um, it's getting invested in their lives versus absolutely just a transactional um, level that I think a lot of networks can can get into.
1: You do bring up an interesting point. My my friend Chris Check, who you may know as well as yeah. leads an that called Catholic Answers, yeah. he meant, recently mentioned at a board meeting something that also stuck with me, which was the idea of the loneliness of command. Mm. And what he meant by that was kind of like what you just said. It's like, hey, I've been doing this for a while. I see that person cross the room. Yeah. Even if they're well-intended, I kind of have a sense of what they're after. And right. it's, it's a bit—it can be difficult, yeah. right? And I mean, it, you can be lonely as a president, which you are— of a big organization and responsible for the allocation of all these, you know, grants and things. Do you ever find that? Like, how do you contend with that loneliness, or that,
0: or or do you even feel it? That sense of the loneliness of command. Yeah. So I mean, so before I did what I did, I was the CEO of uh, Catholic Charities up in Detroit for about five years, and it was the first time I had an opportunity to lead a size organization. What I discovered as CEO is you're very lonely, right? Because your board is not your peers and your the people underneath you are not your peers. So you, you do have a sense of loneliness. Um, I think to get over that by the way is why you surround yourself with mentors and coaches and people sort of outside of the organizational structure you're in, it's people that you can trust and you can talk to. And again, that are, are there for, for you and for your growth and development and the work that I'm currently doing. Um, I have a good team in, and. Mm-hmm. uh, we have a great time and they're, they're great people. So I don't feel lonely in terms of the, the work I'm doing, the people with my colleagues at OSV, but you do get a sense of, you know, are you being used or, you know, is that person coming and not seeing you, but seeing um, uh, a potential gift or a means to an end. Yeah. And I think yeah. if you talk to people, even in philanthropy, some of your major donors, they, you, you have a sense that they're always looking over their shoulder. And they and um, so my encouragement is, is to find the people that are are the real deal that you can trust, that you can surround yourself, people keep you grounded. Um, and and I have funny stories, I think, on on some of that, as I first started doing this idea of giving grants away um, and, and getting a little bit into the what it looks like as a philanthropist, which was a side of the table I had never been on before. Um, but now, again, I can sort of spot who's being sincere or who's making a pitch. Um and I'm fine frankly. I'm used to the pitches. I'm used to getting those and sometimes even the pitch can lead to a relationship or can lead to an idea. So I'm not suggesting people shouldn't do that, but it sometimes it can come off a little disingenuous and you can um you can feel more like a commodity than a uh, than a person. And um you know, I've worked through that in my life.
1: You work with um, a lot of young people as well in in the work that you do for yeah. uh, for the Our Sunday Visitor Institute for Catholic Innovation, and I can imagine that in some of those cases, you know, even though you're well, you're working again with people very well intentioned in most cases, very grounded in their faith. Nevertheless, there may have been an opportunity or two for some coaching in this regard, right? Which is, you know, the 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 learning opportunity, the coaching opportunity to stop someone and say, hey, you know, when you do this. This is how I'm hearing it, right? And let's kind of take a look at the bigger picture. Have you ever, have you had an opportunity to kind of coach one of these
0: younger kind of entrepreneurs in that regard? Multiple times. And uh, I can tell you that, uh, I, I can probably tell you who's going to take the advice and who's not. And, mm. um, you know, there's a, Patrick Lencioni talks about, which I'm sure your listeners are very familiar with this idea of sure. hungry, humble, and smart. And you can sort of tell who's not, um, humble enough to take the coaching. Um, and ultimately, it probably leads to, you know, us not working together or they're not, you know, I would say that what I've been very pleased by is we do with the OSV Innovation Challenge, which you're kind enough to be a part of and mentor these, these teams every year. By and large, the people that get to the finals and the people that are uh, winning are the people that I think are really coachable and uh, that, that definitely comes through very clear. Um, and people who didn't take the advice or didn't take the coaching or didn't listen uh, in, in this challenge, this sort of competition, they, they typically don't excel and they don't win it, if you will. doesn't mean they might not go on and do great things, but you can sort of tell who's the ones who are going to take the advice and who's not. And, um, and I know some young people that are just eager to learn, curious, coachable. And and I think they're going places. They're going to go far. And there's others that maybe will find out the hard way. And they they should have they should have listened to some of the advice given along the way.
1: Is there a particular virtue that you found in your travels? I mean, the, the beautiful thing about what you do is, and I'm putting words here in your mouth. I mean, you can explain better what you do, sure. but I I kind of view it as a um, you know this sort of uh, intersection of all the things that make the business investment innovation world to the extent that they're good it's all those things plus the added enrichment of approaching it from a standpoint of what's best for the kingdom of god so you've got all these great you know tools and resources that entrepreneurs in the broad sense would have but layered into that importantly is the idea that what we're doing what we're innovating how we're being entrepreneurial is ultimately for the purpose of evangelization and bringing people to God. In that intersection, though, because you talked about humility as an example, are there other virtues when you think about, you know, what makes for a successful entrepreneur in that world other virtues that are particularly important? You know, courage or magnanimity or, or what, what are those virtues that you've come across that you find particularly important?
0: I would, so what comes across to my head right away is this idea of perseverance as an entrepreneur, but also, uh, maybe you put a little bit of prudential judgment in there. So you, you want to be, you don't want to give up, I suppose, as an entrepreneur, but you need to be discerning enough to know when it's, you need to pack it in, in a certain sense. And I think there's a, that comes with some wisdom and some maturity and a lot of prayer. You know, when are you like the Mother Angelica's that just never give up and it turns out great? And when do you need to know the Lord's pivoting me towards something better and that I'm not seeing? Mm. So there's a sense of, I want to persevere. I mean, we like the the rocky ones and, and the idea of I'm going to get up and I'm going to stay standing. And uh, we like that. I mean, I think it's a very American sort of a thing. But I think there's also a sense of you, you've you got to know when maybe this is a message or being called. And I, I think that's more of an art than a science for sure. for a lot. Um, humility definitely comes in. You know, Deacon, it's interesting you asked this question because, so we were on this OSV Innovation Challenge and we had 600 ideas last year. And the very first year we did it, we had about 350 ideas. So these are ideas from all kinds of different sectors and with the idea or the purpose of what is the, the methods that are going to reach people for Jesus. Um, when we first started doing this, we were just frustrated that there was no good ideas. And so we thought, let's have this challenge. What was interesting to us was we discovered that it wasn't just the ideas. It was the entrepreneur themselves. And this idea that you could have all the great ideas, but if, you're not, if, if, you, don't, if you don't have a certain sense of moxie and humility and coachability and uh, stick to itiness and and uh, this idea is probably not going anywhere. So for us, the entrepreneur themselves became a bigger factor. Actually, I mean, we do probably more in our challenge than helping you accelerate your idea. We're trying to help accelerate the growth of the person, you. not right. only in their humanity. But also in their spiritual formation, uh, and that became important a part about what we're doing. And then I know you didn't ask this, but I would just offer with that it's not suggesting that there is, in my view, a entrepreneur out there that has these characteristics. I think there's an entrepreneur within all, all of us in a certain sense. I mean, we, we all have a creative bone. we all liked the color when we were kids. I think there's a misconception that you know entrepreneurs. Are these geniuses like Walt Disney and Steve Jobs? And I think we can help form entrepreneurs. And I think they're. I think it's ingrained in me. I think there's a cooperation with the the Creator, God Himself, in bringing these ideas and reaching neighbor and and bringing the message of Jesus Christ. It's not just for the select few. We in church, in particular, in the Catholic Church, I think too often have this idea that. We're waiting for Moses to bring down the Ten Commandments to get our orders of what to do. And I think we, we look and think, well, the priest has some sort of special ordination that's going to give them the vision for what we need to do next. I'm not saying it shouldn't, and it can't come from priests and deacons and others, but that we have a role to play. And that, that this idea of how do I reach my neighbor across the street, or how do I reach my neighborhood or my community, there is a Catholic innovator in all of us. And, and we think these, some of these ideas and principles that you and I are talking about can be used across the church, and it's not just for the, the, the theologians or the, the ordained, but it's, there's this Catholic innovator uh, uh, within, within all of us, um, and everybody has these great ideas, uh, and, and we should put them in action and, and take them forth.
1: The The idea of the challenge of everyone being an entrepreneur, um, or the opportunity for everybody to be an entrepreneur, is actually itself also very well attested to in the teaching of the Church. And I'm thinking—and I know someone like you who studied theology and evangeliz- evangelization can recognize this—but if you think about the Second Vatican Council as an idea of kind of laying the groundwork, the infrastructure, as it will, the permission, the kind of byways and highways— for lay involvement in the business of the gospel, to say it that way, in the advancement of the mission of God writ large, we have all that kind of infrastructure. We have all the laying of that groundwork, all those teachings, which encourage the lay people to become much more active of lighting up that entrepreneur um, inside. But to your point, since the council I think that the examples of us taking that really to heart, you know, as lay people, and I've been both, you know, I was a lay person, now I'm, now I'm clergy, but I've lived both of those realities, I can tell you that I haven't seen as much of us picking up that challenge and kind of running with it, but maybe the first part is the recognition that each of us has a role to play in that spirit of entrepreneur.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I say it all the time, John Paul II called us to a new evangelization new in order, new in expression, new in method. And frankly, the reason we started doing this as an institute at OSV is we felt like there hasn't been a lot of effort or emphasis on what's the new methods. And by and large, I think that probably falls in the lap of the lay people and the lay person in the pew to think about in a very creative, right in line with the heart of the church, very orthodox teachings of the church, but what are those approaches that are going to reach people in, our, in this generation and at this culture? And there's all kinds of fantastic people doing some interesting things that we're able to bring to the surface and encourage people to say, we need more of this. Let's take more chances and let's try some things and let's do some things to, to uh, move the needle here. But I, I agree with you. I, I'm not sure we've taken up that, that mantle. We're doing a lot, Deacon, with this idea of design thinking that you hear in the secular world and trying to think about what is Catholic design thinking. And one of the first principles is this idea of empathetic listening, right? How do you go and listen to your customer in a way that you know, even beyond the words they express, their needs that you can develop the iPod or the iPhone or things that they didn't even know they needed, but man, it makes their life so much easier. How do we teach that in a Catholic context, right? Mm. But Pope Francis is saying these things. He's using words like, you need to have the smell of your sheep, uh, accompaniment, walking with, right? So the secular world and the business community and the entrepreneurs are using these processes to create innovative, interesting things that are changing the way we live our lives. But as church, we're, we're not. But I just want to connect that, to your point, all the underpinnings on the church teaching, even when our current Pope is talking about, is going to this fact that we can be innovative, and we can be entrepreneurs, and we can think creatively on how we can take the gospel of Jesus Christ in all its fullness to other people in our world. And, uh, and that's exciting.
1: The, the Institute itself and the challenge that you've created, what's also cool about it is it is itself entrepreneurial in the yeah. sense that you had this call— Of the new evangelization, and you have this reality of your point. What you said is like in the beginning you looked around, you're like really disappointed by the things that you saw. So, you know, in the secular world, we call that, you know, kind of a market opportunity, right? Right. There's a gap that you're looking to solve, there's a problem, and you're like, okay, well, how do I solve this problem, right? Which is what you've done fundamentally. Now, I do want to touch on something you and I have talked about this before, but I I don't I don't think it gives in like people understand enough about it, and I think it's really interesting is the idea of the context of innovation in a Catholic milieu, let's say. Mm. Depending on who you're talking to. Yeah, it's a loaded word. And I, and I, and I know you, I know this because I've, I've heard you tee up yeah. the Institute, and, and the tee up comes with a disclaimer. Yeah. And it's interesting to me, when that makes its way into your word track, it's because you've come into it a few times. Yeah. Talk about that.
0: Yeah, so when you say Catholic innovation, right, um, you, you do get people who might think, absolutely let's innovate and what they're thinking or what they, they may be thinking is innovation in areas of te- church teaching. Um, we need to change X doctrine. And if we change that doctrine, more people would come into the church, right? It's not the methodology. It's not the, it's not how we're approaching or getting the message out there. Uh, it's more the teaching itself, or you'll have some people say, Wow, if we had more innovation, uh, in our liturgy, meaning if it was more entertaining, or if we were doing X. That is not what we're talking about. We are using it in, I think, the John Paul the second way. We we believe that the church's teachings are beautiful. Uh, we believe that the liturgy is amazing and fantastic and 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 it's a sense of worship but not entertainment. What we're looking for is again this idea of innovative methods, strategies, approaches, ideas. From the heart of the church, right? we think in the since Vatican II, we've had a lot of discussion on on mass and liturgy and music and um, church teachings and and I'll let those all continue to happen and people can debate those. but our focus is on the approach and so yeah, maybe in hindsight uh, the word innovation, but what what we're really trying to get at is this intersection between what I would call pastoral ministry and entrepreneurship and this intersection of orthodoxy and innovation or creative expression or however you want to put it. And I think, frankly, St. John Paul II was sort of a perfect example of it. And I I don't think anybody would argue that he was right in the heart of the church from a church teaching standpoint in some way, criticized that. But I think if you look at The ways he pushed the church in terms of new areas, of his travels, of things he would do. Uh, I I think that he was—I mean, World Youth Day, as an example, was an innovation of the church to reach millions of young people. I think think he is an expression of someone that sort of gets, here's the things that are untouchable, uh, that are intrinsic to who we are, and there's the things that we can try some different things or use some new technologies or approaches to. And so that's what the OSV Institute is looking for, uh, to do. And I do think that if it was just maybe Jason Shanks going out there and talking about Catholic innovation, maybe people would be like, what is this? But when it's OSV, who has been around for 110 years, uh, who I think is really, uh, wants to bring unity to the church, but is right in the heart of the church. It's people can understand sort of this, this tightrope, perhaps where we're walking, um, But I have chosen not to change the language uh, on purpose because I think it's important. Uh, I've One, I think this distinction we're talking about is an important one. And two, I just think if you think about the word Catholic innovation, I'm really talking about Catholic evangelization. I'm just using now more words that people are using more in the business and, and stuff world. You know, just as a soapbox moment, if you will, Deacon, I think as an example, professionally, we put out a lot of people who know their theology but don't really know how to create something that's going to be uh, inspiring to the people they're ministering to. right? They're going to be very orthodox in their catechetical thinking. Uh, they're going to come from great pastoral ministry programs and know scripture and this and the other. But we haven't infused that program with an entrepreneurial mindset. Mm. And typically, in most of these universities and things you're seeing, well entrepreneur is over there in the business school and the theology and pastoral ministries over here, and what we are arguing for is is an infusion of them together uh, that we think will will produce um, better results for the church at large
1: that word orthodoxy too um you know, is we, obviously we know what it means. It means right teaching, right? Uh, Fundamentally is what it means. And yet I find, and maybe this is a byproduct of the kind of moment we find ourselves in that has this kind of political lens seemingly over everything. Right. It it can have, um, even again, in places with the best intentions, with the brightest people, this sense of associating it with a style of being whether that's liturgical or otherwise that can sometimes run us afoul of of you know what the what the true intention of that is just by way of example I had I had um Martha Hennessy on the show a few weeks ago she's the granddaughter of Dorothy Day mm-hmm. and I've I've gotten into Dorothy Day in the last you know few months. Some of it related to the to her being on the show, and others just because other people have have you know mentioned her many times. And to be honest, I didn't know much about her. Right? She's she's now a servant of God. There's a cause for her canonization, et cetera, et cetera. But the way that I would describe Dorothy Day is as a kind of radical orthodox, right? Which is this sense of very much in the right teaching of what the church was, many times to like her great personal costs, right? I mean, she had to, she lost friends and family. She was, you know, coming from a communist background, and she had to explain to all these communists, like, here's why I'm a Catholic now. It's a tough, it's a tough pill to swallow if that's if that's your, the circle you're running in. Mm-hmm. But she never, you know, she always advanced the principle of the church and what the church taught and the beauty that you just articulated, but she was also way out there in terms of her care of the poor, her sacrificing everything for the for the most marginalized, and a lot of these sort of social causes, social justice causes, which in some you know sectors of of you know the sort of or, let's call it the orthodox crowd, and maybe traditional crowd might be a better way to describe it, sometimes can have people raise an eyebrow and go, wait a minute, is this really you know sort of orthodox? And so. Again, I don't know if that's a byproduct of maybe what we're living in right now, or maybe it's always been the case, but we have to sort of rediscover, in my opinion, the true sense of that orthodoxy. And it includes things like innovation, like, you know, um, sanctifying or baptizing or sacralizing things that are out in the world for the purposes of the kingdom. And sometimes I, I think that we... We can look at things in, a, in perhaps too insular a way, depending yeah. on what our own personal kind of background has been.
0: Do you find that? Yeah, I find—I just feel like like ideology is, is too prevalent even within the Church, right? So when I'm using the word orthodox, I mean exactly like you said, like great teaching, in line with the magisterium. I, I was at a conference once, and I spoke and said, I, I love St. Pope John Paul II, I love Pope Benedict, and I love Pope Francis. And you would have thought it was this just shocking moment <laughs> of of someone saying, "I love our Holy Father," oh, and like there's no there's no polarization here, right? Um, and I think if we if study them very closely, we're going to see a lot of congruence in things that we're talking about. The new evangelization to accompaniment, uh, come on, it's I mean it's the same thread. So my point is is that you know um, I think there's an idea of progressive Catholics or conservative Catholics or whatnot and i just want to be catholic and most people i think especially our young people are just sort of tired of the divisions and the polarization and and this this idea that there's a social justice catholic versus a pro-life catholic and uh and i mean i ran catholic charities for crying out loud we we both um so i guess um uh, you know I, as you know deacon i i um i went through quite a COVID battle and was in the hospital for quite some time and uh, woke up, thankfully, thank God. And one of the things that I realized, uh, just on a personal note, and just to share with your listeners, is time is short. And we spend a lot of time debating a lot of dumb things. Um, and there's a lot of work to be done. Uh, and the, the vineyard needs us to be out there. And I just, if you know, I feel like as church, we like America, like the world, we want to run to our corners, and um, and we need much more unity, and and whatnot. And so, as OSV, we want to be a, a place for that. And I mean, you back to all the way your beginning of your conversation of networking and bringing people together, and getting people to work together, and starting to have some of these conversations. Um, but in the spirit of the church and who we are as Catholics, and not to get ourselves into an ideological camp or another. People forget sometimes that the
1: Second Vatican Council was in a way a continuation of the first Vatican Council that was interrupted by, you know, global warfare. Um, So we had to take a little bit of a pause before we took it up again. But being Catholic means affirming everything that the Second Vatican Council teaches, at the same time affirming everything that the First Vatican Council teaches. And because the Second Council was so pastoral in nature, and it was about mm-hmm. you know, the nature of the laity and the Church and the modern world and all these different things, it tends to get a little bit more press you know, than the First Vatican Council. But, it's, but that's the reality of being Catholic, is affirming these you know, variety of teachings um, across different moments in history— that you know really further expand or express what the perennial teaching has always been for that time and place. And I think in particular that's what entrepreneurship can also help to do is to sort of re-express something that's you know the whole idea of ever ever ancient ever new exactly like you, you can kind of you can have the bias too much on ever a- ancient or on ever new exactly but the reality is being Catholic is doing both. This is like, you said it better than
0: I could. I appreciate that. No, exactly right. Every ancient, ever new. that's exactly what we're calling people to uh, is not not you know that idea of the her- her- hermeneutic of continuity definitely is in play. We know what our tradition is. we know uh, the fullness of the faith. Um, we know the things that have worked in the past that maybe need to work now, but there may be some new ideas and approaches to that we and that's the other thing when we're talking about innovation, it's not always the new shiny thing, right? And sometimes it might be another thing that worked before it could work again. The other thing we're finding, which is also interesting of itself, is most of the ideas that are coming through the challenge are are not actually new, you know, in a certain sense. We're fast followers. We're following other people who have done that, either in the Mm. secular world uh, or in the Protestant world. So Mm. we we still, I don't think, have got to this idea of what does frankly, like authentic Catholic innovation look like. I think right now we're still, and it's okay for a while, we're still just adopting ideas that are already out there and applying it to this market. And uh, I think we haven't really got to a place to say, what does what does authentically look like to be a Catholic innovator? Mm. Not, not suggesting fast following isn't a part of it. It's a smart way of going about it. But most of the ideas we're seeing are not um, sort of built from the ground up as this sort of, Uh, new Catholic idea. We're sort of taking the best from others and applying it to the Catholic world. I'll bring
1: up just two quick examples. I do want to go back to COVID for a second, but I I do want to bring up two quick examples um, of what you just described, at least in in my interaction with the work that you do. One of them, uh, my friend, who you also know, Edmundo Reyes, who is one of the founders of Real and True— Is essentially a media apostolate that re-expresses the catechism, right? I mean, it's not anything new in terms of the subject matter, but the way, the method that they're doing this is amazing, right? It's like it's video-driven, it leans into social media, it learns, it leans into short-form content, audio and video. The, the the truth behind it is what we've always known, and you could have you know leaf through this catechism exactly. since 1983 when that catechism was published, and even before that, go back to Trent or any of the other catechisms. But but the way that it's being done is fresh and innovative and new. The other example exactly is right. um, my friend uh, Alejandra Herrera, who's the she didn't didn't continue on in the challenge, but she founded uh, Bendecida, Sorry. which is <clears throat> you know an apostolate kind of based around this whole idea of the quinceañera which in, in, the, in the Latino tradition is kind of like the Sweet Sixteen, right? But it's also a rite of passage. It has a, a kind of religious context to it as well. And she sees this as a moment of inflection in somebody's spiritual walk. And I look at that, and I'm like, that's genius. genius. But, but the reality of it is it's kind of been genius,
0: but we're now kind of applying it in this new way. Exactly. And, and, and talk about someone that's hungry, humble, and smart. She's one of those. And the idea is fantastic. But to take what's already there and to, to renew it and to rethink it, and to, and to utilize it in a way that's going to impact others I, is tremendous. And and, uh, and then you mentioned Real Plus Drew. If anybody wants to sort of see what we're talking about with innovation, I think you can go to Real Plus Drew and see. Wow, this is not the catechism of 30 years ago. It's the same content, but it's presented in a way that's relatable and accessible to today's generation. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and and Mundo and them are doing just a fantastic job, and OSVs happy to be a part of it.
1: You brought up um, your experience with COVID, mm-hmm. and the way that I've described it to the extent that I have, when 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 your name comes up, is you know a COVID case like you read about, right? I mean, yeah. these are the ones where, uh, and I certainly don't mean to have you relive any any unpleasantness, but but this is this was a very 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 serious grave a COVID case, had you in the hospital for a number of months, and, and you know, you nearly yeah. died for not, right. you know, the intervention of your wife and family and a lot of people praying for you. Exactly. And I know that that—one of the things you talked about coming out of that was this idea of really being reminded of the temporary nature of our earthly life and the focus on eternal salvation and mm-hmm. being part of that. So kind of first, I guess, my my first thought on this or question for you is— mm-hmm. Do you think more broadly about COVID, because obviously this also lies within God's providence and that he's at least allowing it. I'm not suggesting God desired COVID because I don't think he did, but he's allowing it. Do you think that there's been a, you know, broadly any benefits by virtue of COVID in a similar vein, this kind of a moment of like introspection or, you know, realization about our lives on earth and our community, even for people who are maybe not religious. Have you, do you see like a general uh, sense of this in this in this issue we've been dealing with?
0: So, and I'm not suggesting you're saying this, but I just want to be careful for your listeners because I, I know a lot of people who have lost their lives to COVID. Mm-hmm. So I definitely don't want people to think that obviously God calls this or or that there's, and I know you're not suggesting that either, or uh, that there's a maybe, but I do think God can, bring good out of something like COVID. And I think for the church at large, for the world at large, and for me personally, uh, that probably has happened. It has forced us, even as churches, we think about innovation, to start thinking about, oh my gosh, the churches are closed. (laughs) Talk about a moment to an inflection point to pivot and say, how do we get out there? How do we get into homes? How do we minister to families? I mean, COVID was an opportunity in a certain sense for to be used to sort of shake up what we've been used to as church and the way we do ministry and work. I think for our country and for the world, it, in some cases, it's brought us together. In other cases, with the debates over vaccines and masks and stuff, maybe it's separated us. But I remember—I mean, just as a you know little story—before I got sick, our Fourth of July last year, where we where we were at. Everybody got out on their driveways and, and, and shot things off. It brought our neighborhood people together that most Fourth of July is here with your families. So I, I saw for the first time neighbors talking to neighbors, people helping each other. Uh, and then personally, I, I mean, I hate to say it this way because, again, for, for me, well, let me just say, for me personally, what I went through and what I went through was six weeks of being sedated and intubated. And uh, a process when I woke up of having to learn how to talk, walk, use my arms, swallow. Uh, I mean, I had to go through rehab to regain uh, anything, right? I look at it as a gift personally, for me personally. Not that I'm saying God calls this, but I I look at it as this is a gift. And the gift for me was I'm able to relate to my special needs daughter in ways I've never could have before. I, I, uh, she's got cerebral palsy. She's got autism. She's nonverbal. She's trouble walking and moving. And I lived her experience. Uh, I would never would have had that otherwise. Secondly, it reprioritized and refocused me, uh, in ways. You know, I, I don't care about some of these little things. I, I see uh, life as fragile. Um, you know, one of the things that happened was, um, when I was uh, told at the hospital in the emergency room that they were going to have to sedate and intubate me, you have to obviously call your wife. So I, I called my wife and I said, you know, this is going to happen. This was around November last year, a well, um, year ago. And um, uh, we had known because we'd followed like everybody else what this means and, and what this could mean fatally and otherwise. And, I never forget, she said to me, she said, Jason, I need you to text me five messages, each one to your five children, and I will share with them later uh, if you pass, but a message uh, saying goodbye. Wow. And I remember sitting there with like 15 minutes before I'm being inundated uh, and thinking about not only all that I should have said to them, all that I should have talked to them about, or now I'm sitting there looking forward and saying, what am I what if my nine-year-old daughter looks at this when she goes to get married, what do I say now? Hmm. It was a moment of clarity. Uh, you know, and I know people say about your, fla- your, your life flashing before you and sort of what was happening. This is a moment of clarity for me of what my vocation means, what my priorities should mean. Uh, and, I, and I did, and I sent them messages. I don't think they were actually very good, but I did send their messages. And then, you know, again, as I'm now going through this, six weeks of, of dreams and another reality because I'm sedated and then and, and fighting for my life and people praying for me, I can just tell people that this idea of eternity is real. Uh, this idea of heaven-hell purgatory is real. Uh, it's something I don't think we take talk about uh, enough of. Um, there's a reason, by the way, that I think as church, uh, in most retreats of the past, there was always a topic of the 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 last things it is to focus us prioritize us and i think as we think about advent we think about the coming of the lord and then the the return of the lord you know i think it gives you a better sense of urgency the sense of what life is about what our legacies could and should be and i think it was this past weekend we we sort of read about in the in the scriptures um this idea of not being drowsy but being ready and I can tell you my experience, uh, led to that. And I, I would encourage people, uh, not in a dark way, but as they go through their avid experience to, to sit down and say, I'm going to give you 15 minutes to say goodbye to everybody you love. What do you say? Mm. And, and to really put life into perspective of, of am I ready for the end? Cause I tell you, I'm 45 years old. I did not expect to be in the hospital. Uh, I mean when I called my wife and told her I didn't tell her I loved her and she was the beloved, my you know the love of my life what I told her was here's where the life insurance is located uh here's how you pay the bills here's all these things because we had never planned for any of this right you you think in terms of decades left and I'm I'm living experience to tell your listeners uh life is short and let's not take it for granted and we got a lot of work to get done and uh and and we need to major on the majors and minor on the minors
1: Amen to that. I'm reminded of the monastic admonition of memento mori, mm, right? To exactly. remember our death in a way and to some people that can sound a bit morbid, but it's the opposite. It's that you weren't made for this, right? As as good and noble as things like planning our finances and where how to, you know, the insurance policy and all these things, they're not those are not bad things. They're good things. But our attention placed on them is what experiences like the one that you had uh, can allow us to kind of jar ourselves free from the scripture passage you mentioned was from this last Sunday, right? The first Sunday of Advent, and in that, in that drowsiness, is also Jesus's words about you know the drowsiness being caused by things like you know drunkenness and other ways yeah. of living, but also by anxieties, mm. by the things that we're right. constantly thinking and constantly you know our mind is constantly occupied. These sort of minoring on the minors, right? That's what he's saying, right. you know, at least in part, right? And, and, and that experience can help you certainly, you know, kind of snap out of that in a, in a, in a very serious way. And, and the reality of it is, as daunting as that idea of like, hey, you know what, you got 15 minutes, say goodbye to everybody that you love, as daunting as that is, in a way, the Christian life brings us to live that kind of always, right? Which is, right. we never know. Never we never knew. know when that moment is could be 45, 55, 105, or five, right? I mean, it could be at any particular
0: moment. You know, and, and so what happened to me was uh, this idea when I woke up and now I have to fight to, to get back. Is this, it's sort of freeing, right? It's sort of liberating. Uh, it's, it's I hate, I don't know how else to say it, right? It's like, I almost died. Mm. Now I'm going to live. Uh, it's like, and, and my, my point being, as you talk about anxiety, I, I'm not sure where, we're sort of free in Christ to live because we're letting these minor things sort of hold us down. And I don't know how to help people sort of get past that, but there's a lot that I don't worry about, frankly, anymore. I mean, when, when you, you know, it's just this time last year, uh, you and I would not be talking. I was laying in a room uh, sedated, and it's odd. It's odd to go through holidays this year knowing That's where i was laying last year and did not experience all this you appreciate things completely different you see the world completely different and i'm grateful for that and as you said you were one of those people praying for me and i i liken it to the idea of um the paralytic lowered through the roof uh and put before the 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 foot of jesus and he says rise and walk and i think too often we focus on uh the paralytic and jesus and that interaction What this experience did for me was start focusing on those friends that lowered him through the roof. And that idea of the intercessory prayer, they're interceding on his behalf. And in my experience, that's what exactly happened is many people, uh, people I don't even know, and I got many cards and stuff, their intercessions saved my life. And I'm forever grateful for that. Um, It's it's their prayer that I think uh, caused a miracle to happen.
1: Oh, I'm sure. That and the intercession of uh, St. Jude Saint Thaddeus, Jesus. from what I understand. Exactly. Um, you, know, you know, one of the things I always think about when we pass on, you know, to, to our great reward will be the knowledge of the person you never knew that was praying for you. Mm. You know what I mean? And how special that will be when we come across that person. It's beautiful when anybody prays for you—friends, family, loved ones, etc., your priest, all that. It's beautiful, and it's, and it's right. But there's something about, you know, God's style, right, Jesus's style, that it's like that one person who's like, wait, them? I was like, I had no idea, had no thought, you know, that they would ever have done that. And, and I think that's one of the visions that we'll have, or the ability to have that knowledge of just all the people who at some point interceded for us in that way. Well,
0: you know, and how often do people say, "Would you pray for me, will you pray for this attention, and and maybe we forget, or we're, we do it right away, so we don't forget, but I can tell you I, I mean I experienced uh i i prayer from people that were very generous with their prayers, with their time, with their devotions, with the novenas uh and it worked, and so my encouragement to people is um don't forget about the power of prayer and to make sure you know as part of our our charity and our almsgiving to pray for others, and uh, you don't know what effect it can have. I remember when I woke up, I mean, the, the advantage that I had was it was like having a funeral and then waking up. I mean, and seeing all these people, I, I, they were showing me these uh, pictures of Zoom rosaries that had been said for me. And mm. I remember looking and saying, wow, some of these people aren't even Catholic. Uh, had I, I known, know. I would have tried to keep me under longer uh, <laughs> because I, didn't, I mean, it was it was bringing people sure together and it was sort of hard to figure out why me and and not others uh uh that's maybe another topic for another day but i'm just grateful and i would just encourage people as we think about innovation as we think about entrepreneurship uh it starts and ends with prayer and reliance on mm-hmm. our, on the holy spirit who is the agent for evangelization and we as people who want to see more and more people come to christ don't don't underestimate uh your prayers, and, and what you can do in your very home
1: for others. We can't forget the importance of that um, internal, you know, that life of, of, uh, of really living our Christian faith at all times, and the power that that has in these kind of, you know, entrepreneurial settings, business settings, you know, trying to make a living, all these different things, is that it really does begin and end to, you know, to a large extent with that interior life, that life of prayer, that life of, you know, communion and unity with God. I mean, that's, that's what this whole thing's about.
0: Amen, brother. Yeah, it's, and, you know, and that's the other thing that I, I, I sort of learned, you know, not to go into much detail, but, uh, you know, for six weeks, I dreamt of a whole nother world. I, I dreamt of a world that didn't exist. And when I woke up, I was confused on what was real and what was not real. And I tried to, I w- had to work my way through that you know, you always hear these philosophical debates of are we living in a dream or... And I'm literally laying there saying, am I awake or am I sedated Mm. over there? And I think this is like... It was hard to figure out. And what I... The conclusion I came to was in my dream world, there was... There was no ordinary. It was all like a sitcom or a scene or different scenes. Some were bad, some were good. But I never watched a dish or I never ate with my family, or I never took out the trash, right? The power of the ordinary, the power of our ordinary mm. experiences that we go through day in and day out is what I realized is what grounds us that this is real and that this wow. is here. And the things that I experienced in this dream world were not real. And my point is, is that as we think about our interior life, I think we should lift up those everyday lived experiences that we go in day in and day out. Too often I think we think about or focus on these extraordinary happenings or events and even the extraordinary things that happen in our own lives. But it's, it's, you know, Jesus was, he lived an ordinary life for 33 years. He spent most of his life doing the day-to-day. And how can we as entrepreneurs, innovators, you know, good people lift up the little things? that we do day in and day out, it's what makes us human. It's what makes us real. And it's a gift in and of itself.
1: That is a powerful, powerful insight and, um, you know, very timely one for sure, right now. It also makes you think of, you know, the great saints through history, right? St. Therese of Lisieux, the little flower, all about the, doing the little things, or St. Francis, you know, preaching to the twigs and the flowers and everything else, or St. José María Escrivá, right? Kind of raising the ordinary to the sacred, because the, that, that whole word, you know, ordinary in our common language means kind of like basic, ho-hum, everyday, you know, not special, But the truth of it is, is it's quite the opposite, right? The word order, you know, means that it's part of this broader story, it's its proper place, it's its competent, you know, competent authority. I mean, from a Catholic standpoint, the whole idea of ordinary, that's what you call your bishop, right? The local ordinary, right? right? Or or the ordinary ministers of communion, right? Which are the deacon, priest, and and bishop. So it has a very different meaning, but how incredibly interesting that in that experience that you had— you could separate what was this sort of dream world from the real world by virtue of whether or not it included these everyday things, because you know God is the the god of those small things, right He's eminently simple and he and he walks with us in all these different ways. It's not just these images of grandiosity that we sometimes you know think is like, oh, there is God, but it's it's God in the small too. Um,
0: and that, wow, that's like yeah, you're going so give me like so for me it was it was it was the. You know, sitting there for weeks trying to figure out, am I in the real world or not? And it was the understanding of the ordinary that pulled me back, Mm. right? It's the appreciation that, ah, in my dream world, I never lay next to my wife in bed to sleep. In my dream world, we never ate. In my dream world, I never did a dish. In my dream world, I never. And it was ultimately the ordinary that pulled me back into the real world that I was able to sort of see almost for the first time the giftedness of those things that I think by and large we take for granted or their hassle or their burden or, I mean, not laying next to my wife for <laughs> to go to sleep, but the, you know, some of these other things that I think we just sort of task away. And my point, I guess, you know, as we think about Advent, my gosh, isn't that sort of how we typically don't live Advent? We live Advent in a way of pre- preparing for the extraordinary gift of Jesus Christ's birthday coming up on December 25th, and we want it to be special. And we want to have these presents, and we want to have the right meal, and we got to have the right decorations. we got to have the right party. But I'm telling you, the gift in all of it is that he came in a manger, and he was as ordinary as ordinary comes. And, he, and, and, uh, and, and that's, I think, the area that we need to think about in our own lives. How do we sanctify the, the everyday things that we do? And I think if done well, that would be a tremendous advent for all of us. That's beautiful
1: brother you just gave me like eight homilies from what you just said so thank you very much always appreciate that <laughs> um, uh, but it's a it's a really obviously it's a great blessing to have you come through that and to be using that experience to um, to enlighten people and to remind us me included of of the God of the ordinary and 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 really what makes us all Christians that's awesome Jason we've um I know we got to get you on your way to go and live this super exciting, um, you know, life that you've been afforded to afforded an opportunity to, to live again and continue the work that you're doing. But before we go and we get to our last segment here, wait. What I wanted to make sure that people have, you know, a way to, you know, obviously follow the work that you're doing personally, the work that you're doing through the institute, through the OSV challenge. But how can people, you know, stay plugged in to all the good work that you're doing?
0: Sure, well, I appreciate that, Deacon. They can go to osvinstitute.com, osvinstitute.com. There, you're going to find the OSV Innovation Challenge. Uh, If you have an idea out there that you think is a good one, uh, feel free to apply. The the applications will open first of next year. You can also just simply go to osvchallenge.com if that is your interest. I will emphasize for your listeners We have lots of what we call napkin ideas. They're simply napkin. If we have an idea, we think we'll throw it in the hat. Feel free, right? We want all comers. We're going to have uh, four different tracks this year. So you might be interested in taking a look at what those different tracks are. And then lastly, we we started TED Talks for Catholics. It's not the official name for it. It's called OSV Talks. Uh, My friend here, Deacon Charlie, uh, gifted us with uh, being one of those speakers. I would... Encourage you to check it out at osvtalks.com, and uh, there's a lot of great uh, information. Speakers they're 18 minute long, just like sort of the TED Talk format, but they're they're really looking at innovative approaches, ideas, uh, great conversations on on ways to sort of advance uh, things forward. And Deacon Charlie and I uh, have a co- one of those conversations, and I know he did a great job on the talk. So that's osvinstitute.com, osvchallenge.com, osvtalks.com. You can get to all of that if you just go to OSV Institute; if they're all linked there. And we'll include
1: um, links to all of this in the show notes, um, so people can access it just on this episode itself. And you know, for my part, Jason, um, obviously, I, I pray for God's prosperity on everything that you and the Institute and OSV broadly are doing. It's been a great gift to to get to meet you and know you and learn more about you and. You know my prayer is that God continue to give you that inspiration and motivation and encouragement to continue on this journey because I think it's super, super important, especially where we find ourselves today.
0: Well, thank you, Deacon, and that means a lot coming from you and you're you're one of the entrepreneurs and innovators that we hope there's there's more of. So thank you for being a friend of the Institute and a friend of the work we're doing and a friend of me personally. I greatly appreciate it. Well, thanks be to God.
1: All right, brother, you ready to play? Wait what? Wait what? Let's do it. All right. Question number one, Jason, we'll start with a softball. (laughs) Which of these is false about your alma mater of Miami University in Ohio? Which is false? Is it A, Miami produced 13 generals for the Civil War? Is it B, for a time in the 1830s, Miami was the largest college in the United States by student population? Or is it C, The total cost for a student to attend Miami during its first year in 1809 was 93 bucks. Which of those is false about Miami University in Ohio?
0: Deacon, what what was the date you gave for the B one?
1: Uh, 1830s. Okay. I'm going to go with A. Miami produced 13 generals for the Civil War. Jason, sadly, that actually is true. Oh, I had no idea. Miami University, Ohio, produced 13 generals for the Civil War. Ten of them led Union troops and three led Confederate troops. So you actually produced uh, quite a bit of generals for the Civil War, interestingly enough. You now it's sad. Answer, Having
0: gone to Miami, they talk about Miami being the cradle of coaches uh, in terms of football coaches. But nowhere do I remember them talking about them being the cradle of generals. So that's interesting.
1: Uh, of Civil War generals, yeah. <laughs> apparently. Maybe, <laughs> Who knew? Maybe others. Maybe other schools had more. All right, that's so, a, that's, a, so that's, that's a good true. So we're down to the other two then. You're down to the other two. Do you want to take a guess? You want me to just tell you?
0: No, no, I'm gonna guess. You can't. All right, very good. So you're uh, down well, to. Well, it is a guess because I don't know. I'm gonna go with. Um, I'm gonna go with false being the last one. C.
1: The the last one is also correct. It is true <laughs> that the cost was, in 1809 was 93 bucks. And believe it or not, that included tuition, room and board, laundry, candles, and firewood. And f- the part that I found really interesting is even when you adjust for inflation, it's still pretty cheap. It was only about $2,000 by today's dollars to go for <laughs> the, go. The, so, the
0: first so, year. The- so B was false. It was, it was not the big university at the time.
1: It, it wasn't the largest college in the U.S. in the 1830s. It was indeed big, but it was the fourth largest. Bigger huh. was Harvard, Yale, and Dartmouth at the time. But it was yeah. still pretty big, just not the largest. This was your so softball you question, huh? This is my softball question. I thought for sure you would have gotten this one. All right, here's a fill in the blank <laughs> question. Maybe, maybe a little easier. Fill in the blank question. All right. Now, Jason, you've dedicated a good portion of your life's work to the advancement of Catholic innovation to serve the Kingdom of God. This, of course, follows in a long tradition of. Catholic innovation and Catholic (laughs) innovators who've given the world everything from the Big Bang Theory to calculus, to the Fibonacci sequence, to the inventions of the (laughs) university and hospital system, right? I know where this is going, and you're
0: setting me up to not get this one right either.
1: this one you'll get right, I'm sure. I'm sure. Ratchet (laughs) up the pressure. So true to that spirit, a Catholic layman named Armand Louis Fizeau was the first person to use an experiment to accurately measure the velocity of blank. A Catholic layman named Armand Fizou was the first person to use an experiment to accurately measure the velocity of blank.
0: What was it? Well, you give me some time so I can Google
1: Uh, (laughs) I'll give you a a hint. Okay. So let me me rephrase the question. Armand Fizou was the first person to use an experiment to accurately measure the speed of blank. Speed of light? Correct. Oh, light. Correct. Correct. Armand Hippolyte Louis Fizou, Frenchman, calculated the speed of light to be 194,700 miles a second, which was within 5%. Of the correct value. So yep, apparently a Catholic layperson was the one who gave us the speed of light. So there you go.
0: See? You know, there is there is, I mean, this is part of the 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 work that we're doing, and I apparently need to study it even more. But we have a history of innovation within the church, a history of rich history that we just need to get back in touch with. I'm going to put a
1: link in the show notes as well to a list of lay catholic innovations throughout history because that's where I found this one and it is chock full to your point of like the most amazing things in the natural sciences and music and physics and art all over the place. So we'll add that link as well. Great. All right. Jason you're batting 500 so <laughs> but you're guaranteed to get the next one right, right. because it's opinion. because the next the next one is an opinion question okay. and it is all we always do a time machine question on this show so here you go you you travel back to garden grove california in 1955 jason there you meet a young protestant pastor who's just moved to southern california fresh from a pastoral assignment in chicago his name is robert schuler now you know from your childhood that he will become dr robert schuler mega church pastor self-help author and founder of the famous Crystal Cathedral, now, of course, the Christ Cathedral of the Catholic Diocese of Orange, California. You're aware of the global influence of what his future ministry will mean to millions, and you're also aware that it was him, in a way, who served as a starting point for your conversion to Catholicism. What, if anything, do you share with
0: Dr. Robert Schuller about your faith walk? So you've done your research pretty well deacon uh, so for your listeners i'm a convert and i spent many a sunday uh, not in a physical church but with my mother watching the uh, robert schuler on sunday mornings um and so i think he in particular understands this idea of evangelization he started by having these drive up masses or services And he started like like you know and so still the crystal cathedral had the experience that you could drive up right he was trying to reach a whole, whole different people he's one of the first persons that i sort of learned this idea of evangelization and how to be positive how to be encouraging but also this idea that you first need to give someone food before you give them jesus um he talked a lot about even people who would shoot arrows in your back uh, for, for doing some of these things. So I think what I would tell him is is sort of thank you for your work and for your ministry and for who you are. I know he got a lot of criticism both at the time, uh, and I know his theology, being having studied Catholic theology, uh, wasn't exactly right at all moments, and and he didn't have maybe the fullness, but I, I think that I would thank him because for a little boy who was trying to discover who Jesus was, uh, I found it in my living room uh, with my mother and uh, with with him uh, preaching and their, their choirs and his interviews. Uh, I must tell you on a personal note, I am very pleased that the Crystal Cathedral is now a Catholic cathedral and that it's being used. And I particularly think that he would take great satisfaction uh, in that fact. And I think he would take great, great satisfaction. That it's in uh, the hands of Catholics.
1: Amen, amen. And uh, God rest his soul. And certainly, uh, you know, you don't know uh, how everyone plays into God's plan, but there's no question that a lot of people heard the message of Jesus Christ through that particular ministry. So, um, but yeah, two out of three, Jason. Not bad, <laughs> not bad, my friend. Doing doing very good. I have to bring you back on so you can do a wait you know. till
0: them wait till Miami the Miami alumni department call me. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, by the way, I got those right from their website too, so there's, there's no, there's no excuse. There's no excuse. Jeez, but uh, and this is the Oxford, Ohio, not in Florida. Right? This, oh no, yeah, of course. This you not the right. one. The one in Miami was is nowhere near as ancient. Yeah, absolutely. that's right. No, exactly. That's right. That's right. Yeah. True. Well, Jason, thank you uh, so much for being on the show, brother. And uh, again, God's prosperity on you, on the ministry that you're leading there at OSV, the Institute, all the good work that you're doing. Um, and we really, really thank you for being on the show. Uh, If you're listening to my voice and Jason's voice, I'm going to remind you to subscribe to this podcast, to share this podcast with anyone and everyone so that we can help the podcast to grow and we can have uh, more excellent guests like Jason Shanks on the show. And uh, we're very proud and uh, happy and privileged to be with you today. And we'll see you again next time on another episode of Living the Call. If you enjoyed this episode of Living the Call, please remember to subscribe and give us a five-star review. Tell someone you love about the show and spread the word. Living the Call is available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. You can learn more about the organization behind the show by searching for the Catholic Association of Latino Leaders on any social platform or by going directly to call-usa.org. That's C-A-L-L-U-S-A usaorg Living the Call is produced by Manu Kasten and Diego Carranza and our friends at Juan Diego Networks. God bless you and thank you for listening.